Today's reading comes from Amos, chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 16. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom, I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent. Because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood, I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked, I will send fire on Taman that will consume the fortresses of Bozrah. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent. Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders, I will set fire to the walls of Rabah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent. Because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king, I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of a trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all of her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. 
They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to give you to the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel? declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not master their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, and the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. Kristen, thank you. Thank you for bringing us that cheerful reading. And uh, uh, good evening. If we've not met, my name's uh, Matt. It'd be lovely to do so afterwards. And uh, half in the room are thinking, oh, Amos, aren't we doing those in Bible studies? Uh, yes, that's correct. Well done, you, uh, if you're on that half, and uh, for noticing that. Um, we don't often do it, actually, chase the same passages midweek as uh, on a Sunday, but occasionally it's good to do. And Amos' uh, first reading has one or two complexities to it. Uh, and so from next week, uh, the sermons will be ahead of the Bible studies, so we can do perhaps some of the work for you on a Sunday, uh, and there's plenty of ways to apply the book of Amos uh, in the details of it. So hopefully it'll go a bit like that. But let me pray, let me lead us as we turn to this Word of God together. Our Father, here is a solemn word. We thank you that you're a God who gives us the words we need. You give us encouragement and promises and blessings and we need them. And you give us warnings and cautions and we need them too. So would we hear this rightly? Would we be able to hear it as Christians if we are trusting in Christ? Would we hear it rightly if we're not yet a follower of his? Help us to hear this solemn word as we should, please, Father, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let me show you some of my holiday photos for no good reason. Uh, here is, um, uh, I took that, I'm quite pleased with that, it's quite good, isn't it, don't you think? Um, that's a lion. Uh, and he was behind, as far as I could tell, about a foot of glass, um, which is generally how I like my lions, um, unless they're on telly. Uh, so there he is, looking uh, slightly bored, but uh, I was safe. Where was that? That was at Taronga Zoo, for those of you who've been there. And uh, it was freezing, it was about zero degrees, so no wonder he was bored. It was the coldest day I've been there in that part of the world. Uh, but so poor bloke, he was probably a bit chilly. But he was behind glass and we were fine. Were he not behind glass, I would be feeling a little bit differently about him. Of course, if somehow... Uh, a, a, what do you call them? A warden, that's not the word. Gatekeeper, that's not the word. Zookeeper, thank you. If a zookeeper, sorry, 
and more coffee. Um, if a zookeeper uh, somehow left the door open and uh, out pads uh, Lenny, um, well, he may be a little less adorable if all of a sudden he stops and puts his head back and roars. Uh, do you think, well, I, I ain't outrunning a lion. That's different. And that is the book of Amos. Because the nation of Israel think they have a God who is fine. And he's nice to look at. And he's their pal. And he's their mate. But he says, I am not. He describes himself as a roaring lion. And the terrifying thing about the book of Amos is he's roaring at his people. And saying, yes, I'm coming for you. Not for them, for you. Here we are in chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, Amos' words, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up on the top of Carmel with us. This is a terrifying roar that's coming out. And you get the same in chapter 3, verse 8. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. He's the lion who can but prophesy. It's a deeply uncomfortable image because it's a record of the words spoken by God against believers, against his people. And as one commentator put it, I quite like this. In one sense, you can summarize the book of Amos like this. God's patience has run out and he says to his people, enough. That's it. I am done. Enough. I will not be taken for granted. Enough. So here we are for the next few weeks. Nine chapters of judgment, five verses of hope. Don't miss the last one. But actually, there's lots to enjoy along the way. As much as anything, Amos is quite a colourful preacher. Uh, Who can't like a preacher who stands up in front of a crowd of people and says, shut up, you fat cows. That's quite bold as a preacher, isn't it? Or stands up in front of the musicians and says, you, with your guitars and your songs, I hate you. That's going to be interesting when we get to that. Some are looking forward to that part in chapter 4. And indeed, chapter 6, twice the musicians get a bit of a walloping. Sorry about that. But here is a book that says, you do not take your God for granted. And so the book of Amos, as we spend, I think, six weeks in total in it, it prevents us from having a domesticated view of God. It prevents us from shrinking the living God down well, to something that's convenient, that we put behind glass and we say, help me now, please, but don't interfere too much. And he is not. He says, I'm a lion. And for some of us, we need to hear very clearly, the way you're living, enough. I am done. Some will know then, here we are, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 says, uh, Amos, we're about 760 BC. You get that from the two kings, uh, uh, Uzziah in Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. Uh, So we're around about 760 BC. Amos is a shepherd from Tekoa, that's uh, 10 miles south of Jerusalem. But he preaches in Israel. Amos is in the wrong country. If you know your Bible history, it was around about 930 BC that uh, one nation, Israel, splits. Uh, and the bulk of them, the ten tribes in the north, they still get called Israel. Uh, the bottom two in the south, they get called Judah. That's where Jerusalem is. Uh, and that's where Amos is from. 
and he's gone to Israel and preaching. Now, they don't like one another very much. There is rivalry that's emerged over the last 150-odd years. No love loss between those two. So Amos turns up to preach in Israel. That's a little bit like a Tottenham supporter, whoever they may be, and uh, arrives in Chelsea uh, uh, on uh, an afternoon at this sort of time of the year and denounces the mighty Chelsea FC in various four-letter words. He will not be greeted with garlands of flowers if you do that on the streets of Chelsea. He will be disagreed with in somewhat forceful terms. That's Amos. He's in the wrong place. Amos turns up amongst people who are naturally his enemies and says, God says to you, I've had it. I've run out of patience. Enough. I've put far too many words down on the sheet if you care about uh, uh, such things. Two things you really need to notice, the two points. The Lord judges all nations for inhumanity. That's really the guts of chapter one. And then the Lord judges his people for rejecting him. Chapter 2. We'll look at it a bit like that. The Lord judges all nations for inhumanity, chapter 1, and then he judges his people for rejecting him in chapter 2. Let's uh, work through it. First, then, the, the Lord judges all nations for their inhumanity. Prophecy itself then starts at, uh, uh, after the biographical details of chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. And yet the Lord roars from Jerusalem in Judah, but roars everywhere. The point being made at the beginning, he rules. doesn't matter if you're in Gaza or Tyre or Ammon, Damascus, where you are. He rules. He is the sovereign ruler of the world and wants all to recognize his authority. But the guts of chapter one is that all the nations, that's where he rules, are culpable for their inhumanity. You'd have seen or or heard as uh, Christian was reading this drumbeat, for three sins and for four I will not relent. For three sins and for four I will not relent. That's an idiom that basically says, oh, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Three sins were bad and now you've done four? Oh, that's just, you've gone beyond the pale. That's the straw that breaks the camel back. Enough. Enough. And so what do we get told about these crimes, that these different nations, they're not Christian nations, they're not, they're not believing nations, they're, they're, they've got no revelation from God, no relationship with him, but he says this. So what about them? Uh, verse 3. For three sins of Damascus, even for four I will not relent. Why not? Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Oh. To thresh grain, you'd, you'd have your big um, sledges of iron, excuse me, of wood with iron teeth in them, and you'd drag them back and forth over the grain. Are they doing that physically, literally, to human beings? Well, maybe, or something equally brutal. But it's a despicable action. Or verse 6, this is what the Lord says, For three sins of Gaza, even for four I will not relent, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom, slave trading. Despicable then, despicable now. But here, whole communities. Imagine the mother saying, take me, just not my child. Take me, not my child. Take all of them. Tyre of Lebanon, verse 9. For three sins of four, uh, for three sins of Tyre, even before I will not relent. Because she also sold whole communities of captives to Edom. 
So Gaza captures them, Tyre sells them on, and disregards a treaty of brotherhood. There's some relationship here, even worse. And then Edom itself seems to be the center of the slave trade. Verse 11, for three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger rage continued, his fury flamed unchecked. What is that? We don't know, but there's clearly... Edom is descended from Esau. They're a brother nation to Israel. There's clearly some horrific violence here, slaughtering the women. And then Ammon, verse 13, for three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent because, oof, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. That's two very helpless people. As a crowd is running away and the pregnant women, they can't. The soldiers rip them open, killing the mother, killing the child. That's heroic, isn't it? Why? Oh, to extend their borders. Just for a land grab. That is despicable. Over the page, slightly different, I guess, but Moab, chapter 2, verse 1. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent. What did Moab do? He burns to ashes the bones of Edom's king. Don't know the details there. Probably they've burned Edom's king alive in front of the people. They've immolated them as a warning. Now, here are war crimes. Despicable ones. And yet, these are not alien to us. The 20th century certainly saw the worst of humanity. The 21st century is no different. On a smaller scale, in some parts of the world, maybe. Did you see the footage broadcast this week? It was on Tuesday, CNN broadcast. Uh, footage taken of a sarin gas attack that Bashar al-Assad had taken out uh, on his own people, the town of Khan Sheikhoun. It was about three weeks ago, just at the back end of April. I mean, there are lots of things you can watch that are miserable. I'm not sure I've seen anything quite that bad. As you see all these children collapsing, foaming at the mouth, convulsing. As you see trucks loaded up with the dead bodies of children. And these still living children, but clearly at the point of death, convulsing, shaking, being thrown on top of the mass of bodies of kids they were playing with an hour earlier. It's absolutely miserable. I wouldn't show it. Look, here's a still. You get some sense of it. It's just one. That's plenty. It is absolutely miserable. And what do you do, though? What do you do with evil of that sort of kind? Well, it's intriguing. If you're the president of the United States, you send 59 Tomahawk missiles into Syria to blow stuff up. And you might sit here and think, well, that was pointless. And what's the follow-up? And how does that fit into any kind of consistent foreign policy? And you'd be right to ask all those questions, I no doubt. But I do think deep down there's something, if you watch that footage, and I'm not encouraging you to do so, but if you watch that footage, and you are the President of the United States and command a massive military, and you just say to your aides, what can I do? That is evil that must be addressed. 
that cannot go unanswered. What can I do? And you fire off some missiles. I'm not sure how effective that is. But I get the gut instinct that says, you just can't let them do that. What do you do? Of your CNN, you get hold of the footage and put it online. I don't know if you saw this at all this week. They took quite a lot of flack. Why do we need to see this? These are utterly wretched images. You could have just described this in words. Why, why put it online? And so two days later, they showed little, they broadcast a little follow-up video. One of their senior reporters, Clarissa Ward. It's just a head-to-camera. She said, we felt it essential to show these images so that war crimes are not just an abstraction. When you watch children gasping their final breaths, when you see them contorting at the point of death, you understand what a war crime is. You glimpse what evil looks like. And so I say to you, you have to watch this footage. You have to bear witness. It's what we can do. Now, I don't know what you do with that sort of evil. You can throw some missiles. You can watch it and cry. Send some money. Appropriate. I guess most of us don't really cope with engaging. I don't need to, because it's over there. Uh, And so we think, oh, no thanks. What's on Facebook? Oh, that's more fun. Phew. I don't have to engage. Because it's very hard to engage with that sort of level of evil when you can't do anything about it. And the way you can engage and not utterly despair is to look upon that and say, There is a God who is sovereign over this and will judge those people. And in some way that enables you to cope. You need to know that there's a God who judges. So you can in one sense care without despairing. All the nations are held culpable for their inhumanity. And so the Lord says, I will judge them. I will judge them with fire. You get that over and again. Verse 4, I will send fire. Verse 7, I will send fire on the walls of Gaza. Verse 10, I will send fire on the walls of Tyre. Verse 12, I will send fire on Teman. Verse 14, I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 2, I will send fire on Moab. God will judge the wickedness of every nation. And every inhumane crime that has been done across this planet throughout the generations will be judged says the Lord. And part of us doesn't like it and part of us knows it cannot be any other way. Now dial it back quite a long way. And that is true of every individual as well. Now do notice here again all these nations that are listed in in chapter 1 through to Moab into chapter 2 they're not believers None of these six nations had a Bible. None of these nations had God's prophets going to them and giving them God's law, God's word, God's character, 
They didn't have that revelation. The Lord is judging them merely, if I can put it in such a word, for their crimes against humanity. They're not being judged for how they treat God, actually. They're not being judged for disobedience. They're being judged for how they treat other humans. Now, that's a national level. You bring it, sort of dial it back down to the individual level. No doubt there'll be some upon, we've sung of that day of judgment, would all stand before Jesus Christ's throne. And no doubt there'll be some that will say, yeah, but look, I, I didn't know about Jesus Christ. You can't judge me for not trusting in him. Look, I didn't know about the Ten Commandments. I didn't know about any of these things. You can't, God, God used to be completely unfair of you for judging me by those standards. And he could rightly turn around and say, well, fair enough. I'll judge you purely by your own moral code. How about that? Oh, much better, because I'm a nice person. Okay, well, let me show you some footage of the things you condemned. And he shows you a little montage oh, of uh, someone saying, yeah, I hate, I hate the gossipers, and I, oh, I hate it when people lie, and oh, when people exaggerate about what I've done behind my back, I hate all those things. And then, oh, look, here is footage of you lying. Oh, and exaggerating. Oh, and gossiping. All the things you declared unacceptable, you've done them all. Oh, I don't need to judge you how you've responded to me, actually. I can judge you by your own moral code. I can judge you by how you treat others. And every single person is left silent. The Lord judges all nations for their inhumanity. And as Amos said this to the people of Israel, no doubt they were thinking, good. Oh, that's good. That's great. Because we've suffered at the hands of these people for a long time. Good. Good. Who's this bloke? Amos, we like him. Good. The Lord judges all nations for inhumanity, but then he moves on. And so secondly, the Lord judges his people for rejecting him. It begins with Judah, chapter 2, verse 4. Judah, the little nation that Amos is from in the south. For three sins of Judah, even before, I will not relent. Why? What have they done? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Oh, well, no doubt. The, the Israelites are a bit surprised. Oh, Judah, well, where God's temple is, surprising. Uh, and what have they done? Oh, they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. So God is going to judge them with fire, just like the other nations. Well, a bit, bit surprising. But um, we don't like them anyway, so it's uh, right, I guess. But then Amos finally arrives. And in chapter 2, verse 6 to 16, he turns to Israel. You notice straight away, oh, he's got more to say. Oh, I've got more to say to you, my people. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. What is it that Israel's done? Well, I think you can summarize the guts of it in verses six to eight. They've oppressed the weak. I think that's what's going on here. 
if you wanted a summary. So verse 6, what do they do? They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now, you can read in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy, uh, sandals are used to um, symbolize the exchange of land. So rather than having, just, just having written contracts, uh, and then you exchange them, uh, and then you complete upon them, uh, you'd exchange sandals, and that would be your solemn shaking of a hand. And, and you might even you'd keep a sandal sometimes as, as a sign or as a symbol of your transaction. So what's going on here is essentially they're not keeping up with their mortgage payments, and some people are repossessing their houses. Like you get in those adverts. If you do not keep up with your loan repayments, your home is in danger of being repossessed. And none of you take any notice of that because you think owning a home. (laughs) Um, But uh, it's that sort of thing. And he's saying, well, you're you're nicking people's houses because they've got, what, one week behind on their payments? That's the gist of it. Verse 6. I guess more explicit, verse 7. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Well, we're not told the detail. We'll get that later on in the book of Amos. But the poorest and the most vulnerable get no justice. You don't have equal access to the courts. Even today, if you've got more money, better lawyers, compared to someone who's on uh, state aid and, and uh, a solicitor who turns up 10 minutes before. You ever done jury service? Not quite equality, but much, much worse then. Verse 7, father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. The word for girl means slave girl, literally. So it looks like in a household, dad and his son force themselves upon the slave in the house who has nowhere to go. We'd have to be quite the same, but a number here are involved in the work of Tamar. Try to reach out with the gospel and practical help to well, two women who've been traded, trafficked into the UK, had their passports removed, and then coerced to work in the sex trade. These things still happen. Uh, verse 8, they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. You know, in those days, the, the, uh, a wealthy person might lend a worker, look here, I have 100 quid, and uh, you, if you need it, you can borrow 100 quid from me, and I'll take your coat uh, uh, which is worth 200 or so, uh, and that'll just be a deposit. And I'll give you back your coat uh, when you give me about my 100 pounds, uh, and then goes to church wearing the coat. <laughs> hey! Well, that's a bit inappropriate. And you confiscate drink, and then you drink it at church. Oh, I think all of these things, it's the powerful oppressing the weak. And we see these are just themes he's introducing. They get blown out much more throughout the book. Now, we could quite easily look at this and think, well, look, verses 6 to 8, those are not great. I recognize those things are not great. But compared to ripping open the bellies of pregnant women and uh, being actively involved in the slave trade and uh, uh, that sort of death and destruction, burning people alive, I mean, they're not great, but they're not that bad, are they? And yet, do you see what's going on here? The Lord says, Israel, you may not be doing what they're doing, but you know me. You know my law. You know what I expect. So you are far more culpable for your disobedience than they are for their depravity. Oh, don't worry, I will judge them for their utter inhumanity, for their war crimes. But you should know better. 
But we get that conceptually. Did you see the miserable thing in the week? Uh, I think it was Wednesday. Uh, a 10-year-old girl in Florida got into her parents' car, wanted to listen to something on the radio, turned it on, and reversed over someone who was walking behind and killed them. Oh, how absolutely miserable for everyone involved in that. And the police are investigating it as a tragic accident because the 10-year-old didn't know what she's doing. You know, if a 30-year-old who's been driving for 20 years gets in a car and reverses over someone, you're going to end up with a prison sentence. Carpal manslaughter, I would imagine. Because you know much more. And therefore your knowledge, your experience makes you culpable. That's the point here. Oh yeah, they've done wicked things, those pagan nations, but Israel, you know me. You know my rules. So it's no good for a believer to say, well, look, I may have sex when I shouldn't have done, but I've never sold anyone into slavery, so I'm okay. No. No, verse 7, you profane my name. My holy name, says the Lord. No. Or again, you might dial it back quite a long way. It's no good for a believer to say, well, look, I may be mean with my money. I may be uncaring towards others at church, but I've never gone to court and knowingly diddled someone. So what? Well done. Good not to go to court and lie and, and diddle. But if you're a believer, you know what God says. And you know you should be concerned for others within the church. You're a Christian. You bear God's name in the world. He expects much more of you. So God's people here, they oppress the weak, verses 6 to 8. They should have known better. And verses 9 to 12, they did so despite God's grace, which they also knew. God had shown them enormous kindness. So verse 9, do you not remember, Israel, what I did for you? Look, I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were as tall as cedars and as strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruits above and their roots below. I brought you out of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your, from among your children, Nazarites from among your youths. I did all these things for you. I've shown you kindness. I've given you this extraordinary land which you didn't deserve. I've done these things. Verse 11. Is this not true? Declares the Lord. And what have you done? Well, the Nazarites, that's the sort of young, keen role models in the community. The young, keen believers, you've gone and got them drunk. Verse 11. Verse 12. You commanded the prophets not to prophesy. You say, oh, shut up, vicar. That's what you do. I gave you grace. I gave you kindness when you deserve none. And yet you treat other people with oppression. You're self-absorbed. It's all about gain, gain, gain. Enough. So destruction will come, he says, verses 13 to 16 to Israel. Destruction will come. If there's no repentance, I'll judge you too. Not with fire, not just with fire against the citadels and the kings, but here is destruction for the whole nation. Verse 13. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. 
The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. The horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day. Who will escape? No one. Is his point. You may not have acted inhumanely and committed war crimes, but you dishonor my name when you should have known better and destruction will come. So the Lord says, I'll judge all the nations for their inhumanity, for their war crimes. The Lord judges his people for rejecting him. So look, as we finish, what do we do with this? How do we hear this? I can't tell you how to hear it. It depends who you are. But let me try and summarize. The Lord has shown us favor in Christ would be the third thing to say. The Lord has shown us favor in Christ. If you are a Christian today, there is an enormous gulf for you when you read this compared to Amos' original audience. He is addressing a nation state in a certain geographical area. Israel was a nation of nominal believers. On the census form, they ticked believer in the Lord, but it made no difference to them throughout the the rest of the year. So here's a nation of nominal believers threatened with military disaster being booted out of their geographical land. That cannot be the same for Christians. We don't have a geographical land. There's no Christian stateness. We have no entry in the Eurovision Song Contest. That's probably a good thing. It's different now. So many of us here are Christians, and we know that although we fail to honor the Lord rightly, Christ has taken our punishment. And that is a wonder to us. You can read these verses 13 to 16 and think, yeah, Jesus Christ was crushed, so I will never be. Verse 14, his strength failed so that I can stand on the last day. He lost his life so that mine could be saved. God the Father did not relent in punishing his son, Jesus Christ, so that he might relent and have mercy upon me. And that is the cry of the Christian. Wonderfully so. So look, if you are a Christian trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord will never destroy one who trusts in him. But, if I can put it in these terms, if you're a believer who takes him for granted, and in particular in chapter 2, takes advantage of other people, you may need to hear his roar. If you're a Christian tonight and you take him for granted and think, well, whatever I do, God will forgive me and he's on my side, you may need to hear tonight, enough. If you carry on like this, you have no right to bear the name Christian. Do not profane my name, enough. There's a sense in which as Christians we live in chapter 2 verses 9 to 11. 
We've been shown enormous grace of Jesus, by Jesus Christ. And how we respond reveals really whether we've trusted in him. So really, if you're a Christian here tonight, know the grace of Jesus Christ and show it in response. If you know that the fact that you, you claim the name of Jesus and say, well, he's died for me, but it makes absolutely no difference to your life, maybe you need to hear the rule. Chat to someone afterwards. Speak to someone sensible who's going to give you a good comment. But some probably need to hear the rule. Christians are those who know the Lord. They know his character, they know his forgiveness, they know his kindness. And so we say, because of how we've been treated, we want to honour him, we want his name to be honoured, we want to treat others rightly. We want to, we are confident that we've received his grace, are trying as best we can to show it to others, and know that his roar has fallen upon Jesus Christ. But I can't tell you how to hear Amos 1 and 2. I pray you hear it rightly. Trusting in Christ, you know he's been crushed for you. Praise the Lord. Claiming that name, but making absolutely zero difference to your life over a period of time. I don't know. Because the grace of the Lord is a grace that transforms, that causes us to live differently. And we praise Jesus for that. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we do want to pray, and certainly I would want to pray fervently that we hear these chapters rightly. They're a solemn warning in the book of Amos. We are not to take you for granted. We are to care deeply how we look out for others. And if we're taking advantage, oppressing in any sense, we ought to be unsettled. Father, that is unlikely to be true for most here tonight. And so I pray for, I think, the majority of us here that we would once again clearly know, know that Jesus Christ is the rock who was crushed for me. He experienced the unrelenting anger of God upon the cross, so I did not and will not in the future. Father, help us even as we read this language, as we've sung earlier, to be struck with gravity about how serious your judgment is and therefore how wonderful it is to be hidden in Christ trusting that he has paid for us help us to go on our way celebrating that we ask in his name Amen